From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro. This is the Imagine a Place podcast, where we explore the power of place and the role of design in our lives. I met Alejandro five months ago at what I would rank as probably the top local design event that I've been to, the New Year New You event in Miami, Florida, where I hosted a panel. What stood out about Alejandro was his aura. He just had this creative and positive energy that you could just feel. Over coffee, I learned more about his story. And once I did, I was set on sharing this with you. Alejandro faced two battles, first at the age of 12, escaping gun violence and a near-death encounter, and coming out as a 16-year-old trying to find his way. Alejandro's journey through life is a story of courage and all the feelings of what it is to be human. So I am Colombian. I was born and raised in Medellin. I came to the U.S. when I was 13 years old, so 2003. I remembered my city and certain areas of the country because you just couldn't travel to certain places because it was just simply too dangerous to go there at the time, unfortunately. And Colombia is a beautiful country. Colombia is, is, is incredible, but, you know, every country has its problems. I mean, granted, Colombia has a little bit more, but, you know, you, you learn to live with them. But... When I was born and toward up until 19, 1993, um, I was three years old, but I still have memories of everything that we went through with Pablo Escobar. Um, mm. And as much as we want to try to get away from that story, we, we, just, we just can't. He's part of who we were at that time. He's not part of who we are now, but we, we, have, to, we have to recognize where we've come from. And that time in Colombia was just so... It was a very sad time. It was a very dangerous time. It was a very time. It was a time that it was not. Um, it was not a good idea to be on the wrong side of certain issues. Mm. So, so I just remember, you know, my family being extra affected because my uncle at the time was a police officer. So, Pablo Ooh. had at some point started paying five thousand dollars cash for every cop that whoever and anybody would bring dead. So if you shot a cop, then you can prove it, then Pablo would pay you $5,000 cash. So mind you, in like the 1990s, $5,000 cash in Colombia basically pulled you out of poverty, paid your kids school, put whoever through college. So it was a huge incentive for people to actually go out and kill cops. Wow. Um, so it was just, it was like that nervousness and that extra level of because because you can feel for people because it's like oh it's happening to them but when it's happening to your family it's it's a completely different ball game it, it was a really hard time in the family and um it was uh it, it was every day it was a gamble oh is he still alive is it still okay Where we used to live, imagine a hill, 
right? So there were three main um, players in this issue. So the FARC, which is the, the guerrilla group in Colombia, um, I believe they're the, the longest um, lasting active guerrilla group in the world, which is like a little bit over 60 years or something like that. So they were at the top of the hill. And then there was another guerrilla group was like in the middle of the hill, basically. And then there was the police at the bottom of the hill. We lived at the bottom, at the bottom of the hill. And so throughout between 2001 and 2002, there were a series of military operations that happened from the police and the military and the, the, the armed forces. And basically it was to like take control again of the neighborhood. So the commune where I used to live, um, that's what we call a group of several neighborhoods, it's a commune. So the 13th commune was made up to like 16 or 18 neighborhoods, something like that. We, were, we lived in one of them. So um, to take back the control of the commune, which was being disputed over by these two guerrilla groups already. So there were the guerrilla groups fighting for control of this commune. Then there were the police fighting for control of the commune. And then there was, you know, the gang members fighting all three of them to throw mm. them out, to keep control of the commune. So, and then in the middle is the community. In the middle, it was us. We were there. So then throughout, throughout that time, there was a whole bunch of military operations. And the first one that was really major was in March of 2002, and that was Operation Mariscal. It started at three in the morning, and we were woken up by literally tanks just rolling up the street right in front of my apartment and just starting to fire. so much firing, so much gunfire, and so much fighting that at some point it became kind of like a protest by the, by the community because a, um, a little girl walked out of the street with a white shirt, just waving a white shirt. And then everybody from their balconies and everything just started waving white things for like the police to stop and for all sides to just stop firing at each other. Because it's like, here's civilians getting killed by the police or the, the, the guerrilla groups. We don't know. Um, there was people going into houses and arrest, like the police was arresting people with no due, nothing. Like they just simply went in, you look like you're from the guerrilla, right? you're coming with us. So it was an wow. abuse on everything. So that was the first, you know, it was already kind of like the issue with my with my uncle and the, and the traumatizing thing with him, being a police member and the whole thing with Pablo. And then a couple of years later, we're dealing with this issue where we're living. Um, and then towards the middle of uh, 2002, the guerrilla groups basically sent out a whole bunch of flyers into my mom's school and they went in there and telling them that they needed to start recruiting their students to join the guerrilla groups. Otherwise, they were going to, you know, kill us off. Um, we were, you know, and, and my mom ignored them. My mom told them no. You know, she wasn't going to do that. She wasn't going to start doing any of that. And so when you ignore a request like that from the guerrilla groups, it's basically a death sentence, more or less, because it's like Ugh. you just don't say no to those people. So then there was that issue. And then after that, the second, the, the last, the very last military operation that happened was in October of 2002. And that one was insane. 
that one was really, I, I really felt like I was in the middle of a war zone. We woke up one morning and I was maybe like 5, 5.30 in the morning. So the sound of helicopters just firing at the neighborhood. And you were 12 or 13 at this time? I was, I was 12 years old. I was 12 years old. So 12 years old and my sister is seven years old. So here we are, we're waking up, we're like, oh, great, another one. You know, like, let's see how long this is going to last. Maybe it'll stop by the time that we, you know, have to go to school or whatever. We have become so desensitized to it that we were just, because it happens so often that we were just like, oh, here goes another one, you know. Um, and so after that, uh, it, just, it just didn't stop. Like, it just did not stop at all whatsoever and it just kept on getting worse and worse and worse and then it, and then it started the bullets started hitting our building my mom was like uh you guys gotta go so i don't even know how i'm gonna get you guys out of this apartment but you guys gotta go so there was like um there was like a how do i put it um like the building was like sunken into the ground a little bit so there was like a little bit of a hill that kind of covered the walkway um okay. for us to get to our apartment so basically my mom said, okay, so you guys are going to crawl on this walkway very close to the building and you're not going to get up and you're going to go around so you can go down the, the the southern entrance of the complex. So I told my mom, I'm like, okay, I mean, sure. Like we have to go to school. Like, okay, I'll protect my sister, but okay. I don't even know what the hell my mom was thinking, but she just, she was just reacting to everything that was going on. She just said, I need to get my kids out of here. So you guys got to get right. out. So we were crawling and we made it all the way down to the to the southern entrance. You know, there was a whole bunch of fire and, you know, there was terrorists burning, people throwing stones, firing, um, the tanks were just rolling up the, the roads, just firing, like, literally, like, you see, like, a tank fire in the movies and it creates, like, this boom whenever they fire their main gun. And it's one thing to see it in the movies, but it's another thing to feel it in person it's mm. like it's like the very air gets sucked in and you're just like you just like you move like that and the sound is just let's just say it's no sound that a 12 year old should hear so we are crawling we make it to the to the southern entrance of the complex my dad is there to pick us up my mom and my dad had been divorced but um so my dad came and picked us up because that's as far as he could get make it because the police had you know closed off all the roads and there was no access when my dad picked us up, um, we had final exams. So I, I guess my parents' like main concern was like I need to get somewhere where my kids, where I feel like my kids are safe, and that was school. So my dad took me to school and took me and my sister to school. And my sister, when she got there, she didn't make it two feet past the door when she started like crying. Like she was like holding up everything and. Once she made it to school, like that's when everything just, it was too much for her to hold and she just mm -hmm. broke down. So obviously my dad couldn't leave her there, but my dad did drop me off and I made it all the way to my classroom. So when I made it there and it was a math exam, I remember it like yesterday. It's like, it was a math exam. I mean, it's unbelievable that you I know. could just shut one <laughs> off and start another. <laughs> I know. So I was just, yeah, it was just, I, I can't even believe it that that I went that I went to school and like I don't even know it was a whole thing and so when we made it so I made it to class and so my best friend at the time he goes like he 
gestures like what happened you know like why are you late to the you know final exam so i'm like okay well i went like this i did the, the sign of a gun and so when i did that i guess that just triggered everything in me and i just i literally sat on the floor and i just cried and cried and cried to the point that i was just like unconsolable like it was just nothing but crying hysterically and just kind of like really kind of like any little noise like the door would open and i was just like you know like jump or like the door would, like anything that a pencil drop anything was just triggering so then my dad obviously had to come back pick me up so then we went to my grandmother's house um when we made it to my grandmother's house we did not hear or know anything from my mom for a good six seven hours we we didn't because the phone lines had been cut so we had no way of contacting her we didn't have a cell phone there the cell phone cell phones were too expensive and and we just we didn't know if my mom was alive or dead or i we didn't know what had happened so then around i don't even remember what time it was probably like six or seven in, in the evening my mom shows up you know she just knocks on the door and she just sits downstairs and just cries and it just cries and it was just it was just kind of like we were all relieved that she was alive but at the same time we were just like really concerned because it was like half of like like it was like a panic attack and it was just like everything coming out at once and i've never seen my mom that distraught over anything mm. so then we stayed at my grandmother's house and that was the very last time i ever saw that apartment we never went back So you land in Miami. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How was that as a 12, 13-year-old landing in a new mm-hmm. country, right? trying to gain a sense of home? It was like that entire chapter of my childhood ended that day. Like That was like the end of what my childhood was. <sighs> it was literally yeah. like, it's like you're flipping a page or like you're switching the channel. Like I, I split my life between before that day and after that day. So when you're when you when you get to Florida and you start to live your life here, was there a moment where it felt like home all of a sudden? So when I first got here, I came to this country. At that time you have to understand that that coming to the United States was your ticket out of Colombia, you was your ticket out of poverty. Your ticket out of out of the life that you would have led in Colombia. Not to say that you couldn't live a good life, but the opportunities are just not the same. And that's just simply the reality of the situation. So I came to this country, you know, feeling like I was escaping a certain death, but but it felt also like I was leaving a part of me behind and I was kind of happy that I was leaving that behind, but at the same time, I was just very scared because I always known that I was gay. I've always known since I was very little. And so just living living in Colombia just felt like I was like, I'm never going to be able to live me. I'm never going mm. to be able to be accepted for me. But yes, to answer your question, coming here felt extremely strange. So it was a lot of different emotions. It, it eventually became home, you know, after a few years. Um until I until I came out and like my coming out experience was not cute, but um, well, when you know, was that? 2006. I came out in 2006. I was 16 years old. So for three years, you know, everything was like 
incredible. After that, after me coming out, it was not handled properly. Um, it was a period of time that just became very dark. You know, it's, my parents reacted the way many Hispanic parents would react to their child coming out, you know, which is not had always very positive. They have since learned and have been so accepting of me and my husband. I was the first person to come out of my family, but my sister is bisexual and she's in the Air Force, married to a wonderful woman. And they just had a baby. So really, really wow. happy. Yeah. But I was the first person to come out. So nobody knew how to handle anything, which is why I don't hold it against them. I, I yeah. can't, you know, my parents, you know, grew up in a generation that was extremely conservative in a sense, because Colombia is a very conservative country. Uh, it's a very religious country. So their reaction to me coming out was a product of their upbringing. Being gay back then, it was like, you know, a sin and it was an abomination and you were a disappointment to the family and all of that stuff. Like basically you were dead to the family. Tell me about introducing your husband to your family. We've been married since 2016. So coming, so it's five years now, coming on six. And it has been such an incredible journey with him that it has just been amazing. First coming out was difficult. And then having my family accept him as part of the family, you know, accept him as part of me, who I am as a person now, even though he doesn't, he doesn't speak Spanish, you know, he's, he's a New Yorican from Buffalo, New York. But so, so yeah, so even with the family that I have in Colombia that, you know, after they came around to understanding and being more accepting on me, of me and my, my life, he managed to just get inside of his, of their hearts. And it was just incredible to see him do that. And, and my family embrace him in the way that, that they have. And yeah, it's that's it's, so special. Yeah, it really is. It really is. It's incredible. And that's something that I never saw for myself. I had never seen myself, you know, like be married because it wasn't recognized, you know, around the time when I came out. So, so I never, I never saw any of that. You know, I never saw any of that in my life. You know, I came to terms with the idea that my family would never meet any of my boyfriends. I, I, I also mm. believe that my life was going to be a never ending parade of, you know, we don't talk about Bruno, you know, when it came to whatever mm. was going on in my life, it was, you know, we don't talk about Alejandro, you know, that that's what I thought my life was going to be. But good God, oh, I was, you know, I was wrong. Do you, do you, I mean, I don't know this, but do you feel like most people when they're coming out or before they've come out, do they think they have this feeling of like, my, I won't ever be able to get there. Yeah, yeah. And that's a very, very common feeling because we hear these horror stories of families breaking apart and kids and, and, and young people getting thrown out of their homes into the streets simply because of them being gay. So if you don't have a family, then what can you hope for in the future kind of thing? And then we have all of these things that, you know, being attacked both politically, religiously, you know, even sometimes socially, that we were still kind of seen or treated as second-class citizens. So we don't have the, the effortless validation of the, that heterosexual people enjoy. Mm. Um, and, and that's why owning a home is such an important thing for me, because first, 
my love and my life and my very existence was recognized legally by the federal government in 2015. So we got married. So that was when we got married, it was recognized. And, and that meant everything to me because now I felt like it was like I was normal. Like I was part of society and my love was valid. And now owning a home is kind of like that extra step of of solidifying that love that we have for each other and reaffirming our dignity as people that love each other and that we have a beautiful family together. That's the point of the home. It's kind of like that validation. Well, I, this, this is amazing. I mean, this evolution of mm -hmm. a younger you Mm -hmm. fearing that you may never be able to share something you share mm -hmm. your full self with your family have a family and now here you are you know saying hey we're gonna have a kid yeah and we're yeah. gonna have a home and enjoy like you said the effortless validation and i thought mm -hmm. wow that was really strong when you said yeah. those two words so as you introduced your husband to your family was there a certain family member that 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 helped bring this along? I mean, can you share a little bit about maybe who was important in that process? My mom and my sister were the first ones to come around to be more accepting and taking a more active role in my gay, gay lifestyle, you know, as they would call it, as they would call it then. And, and it was always nice. I, obviously, this was after maybe like a year or two of very rocky relationship. But then it was out of nowhere that really my stepdad kind of like almost flipped the switch. But, and the thing that you have to understand about my stepdad is that he came to this country where he was 21. He had never had children. He never raised anyone. He was by himself here, very much how we came here. He was just by himself, no other family. And, and then suddenly at 39 years old, he got a new wife, he got two kids. And then on top of that, one of them came out as gay. So like, it was a whole lot of new happening at the same time, you know? So, so that put a lot of strain into my, my mom and my stepdad's relationship. I mean, it put a strain on everybody's relationship, but, but me coming out really put a test on that relationship. And my God, you know, because it, it, it was, it was, um, it was more difficult for my mom because, you know, she had to deal with balancing her kids and one of them coming out, and then a new person in her own personal life, you know, and she was the glue that kept all the family together. She was everything, you know, she, she had to hold all of us, all of us together, you know, through this new thing that was happening. But, you know, it was because of my stepdad, it was because of my stepdad that I got to bring my, fur, my boyfriend home for the first time. He was the one that told me, you know what, this is, this is, you and this is what it's going to be so we might as well just start getting used to it and here we are so bring your boyfriend to the barbecue so i was like okay sure i'll bring my boyfriend for the first time and that was so powerful and i am so happy and i remember it so clearly when he said those words to me and the happiness that it brought to me it was just incredible well you deserve you deserve that and much more and i hope this effortless validation as you've worded it i hope that yeah continues you know i hope that you're able to live out that relationship you mm -hmm. know inside your family and beyond with the mm -hmm. sort of frictionless love that 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 you deserve thank you thank you and you know and yeah thank you <laughs> i'm just yeah. happy to be able to 
to talk about it freely and to be comfortable in it and living my true self. All right, Alejandro. So you are a designer at Empire, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Empire has grown. Man, they're getting big. Oh my god, I know. <laughs> I love it though. Yes, I mean, the I, Empire is growing. We're gonna strike back. <laughs> yes, you know what? That's just fitting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, tell tell me, I guess, how you found your way into this industry. What do you love about this industry? Uh, you know, I met you at an event, mm-hmm. and yeah. I, you know, you were one of the 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 joys of actually me coming to Florida and having yeah. having that encounter with you. I was like, wow, this is so fun. How do I share this person with the world? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm glad I get this opportunity to do it. Well, thank you. I mean, that's a little little note on that. Um, I think I was introduced to your podcast like not too long before the event happened. And I literally, I binged probably all of, I don't know, maybe 40 something episodes before you came down for New Year, New You. Um, nice. And I was just like, literally just, you can ask Alexis or anybody. I was like, yo. I, I gotta meet this person. Like, you gotta get me an in, in, like like an introduction or something. Like, and it was, and I even asked Maria and Megan, and I was like, "Girls, you gotta do something for me because <laughs> I need to meet this person." So, so I was really excited to meet you and and, and be able to like you know speak with you and everything. Thanks. So, thank you for having me on here. This is this is really amazing. Absolutely, um, thank you for that. Yeah, <laughs> and so honestly, I got into this industry in a very funny way, um, I guess. I have always been very interested on what makes people comfortable in a space, mm. particularly because I, you know, I, I found interior spaces to be my place of refuge whenever all the shooting would be happening outside. I would find, I would create a fort in my bedroom and you know, design it in a way that it had like a maze to it, so I felt safe, so people couldn't like figure out where I was. And so I guess it was mm. just like a reaction to the trauma, but. Um, I went to the Art Institute of Fulardale, uh, got my associates there, and then I started working for a designer in Palm Beach um, as a design assistant. And so she introduced me to the world of high-end design. All of her clients are rich, retired people. And so so she introduced me to that world, and then I decided to go back and get my master's degree And so at FIU, and so I, I, I did. And I was working at a baby store. Um, I was designing baby nurseries. This store was called Give Wink. And so I worked there for two and a half years and I met some amazing, amazing people. I once did a delivery to the granddaughter of Lyndon B. Johnson. The oh, no way. Yeah, yeah. She lives down in South Beach. And so she was uh, doing a present for a friend of hers that had a baby. And so we had it all made up and I had to deliver it down to her house. And that was pretty freaking amazing. That is wild. Um, yeah, yeah. It was pretty, pretty cool. Um, to be able to do those things. And so I just kept on falling in love with interiors. I love the way you described your feelings and your passion for interiors coming from a place of wanting to create a comfortable place for someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it made me think of a, a phrase that I wrote down recently, which was mm-hmm. uh, you know, making a place for someone or designing a place for someone is one of the most sincere expressions of listening and care you can you can give the world you know like when you make a place for someone you're 
thinking so deeply about that other person. And I can feel that inside of you. Uh, oh my God. part of what you love. It's, it, it's such a thing because it, you can make a meal for someone and they'll love it, you know, whatever. It's like if you have a great cooking skills, you're like, this is amazing and I want to eat here more often. But when you design a place for someone, it is such a personal experience. And, and that's what makes me happy. If you're happy and you're smiling because of something that I did, that is enough payment for me. That is like, I, I just feel so so good that I was able to do something good for someone. It's such a good feeling. Such a good feeling. It is. I, I think you've captured maybe sometimes what we forget about why we mm-hmm. love what we do so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is it's, really cool. It's it's people. It's it's all about it's all about people and, and what makes you know, we, we spend so much time of our lives indoors. Why can't we make that, you know, the best experience that we can have? Like why is why is design this elite thing, I guess, for some people? Like why do people think that design is just not for them because it's unattainable or whatever? No no no. Oh, everybody deserves design. Everybody deserves good design. All right. Did I uh, mm-hmm. did I leave anything out, Alejandro? Is there something maybe you had hoped to talk about that we didn't get to? Um, actually, yeah. Sweet. So this morning on the way here, I listened to the podcast that came out yesterday about your thoughts on the metaverse. Oh yeah. Yes. Oh my God. So the metaverse. Good lord. That's a that's a very interesting subject for me um, because while I agree with you that the metaverse will, can be used as a means to escape the real world and just, in a way, run away from your problems. I also think that we're thinking about this as two separate entities that live in two separate dimensions, when in reality, why can't we both, why can't we merge the both in the sense that, yes, it can be a place of escape, but the way that people design these places of escape in the metaverse Yes, well, the metaverse allows you to create, to ignore the laws of gravity and the laws of physics. There's information there that a designer can take and apply them in the real world. There's information there that can be translated into the real world, and the metaverse can be embedded into the real world. I don't know, maybe in the distant future, why can't we have the metaverse happen through a window in our bedroom or something like that, that we can interact Ooh. with that, where a place of escape also meets you know, the, our, our, our physical place it, it meets the physical plane like i i feel like i think i feel like thinking of those two of the physical world and the metaverse as two separate entities is i feel like it can lead to a lot of negative things but if we merge both of them together we can create some incredible spaces and i and i think workplaces is oh my god it's such an exciting place to try some things out coming from the dealership side i've seen oceans of workstations sometimes now turned into oceans of ancillary everywhere <laughs> my god there has been so much ancillary <laughs> that i'm just like oh. and like half of this half of these ancillary products like don't have symbols and i'm just like oh my god <laughs> so but but i feel like i don't know i feel like the metaverse and the real world can definitely come together and I'm just, feeling that. And just work 
with each other instead of against each other. Instead of being, you know, one doesn't have to be the, I don't know, like the replacement of the other. I, yeah, I, I am totally feeling that what you're saying, you know especially what I mean? when you describe that window. Mm-hmm. I was like, I can see that. I yeah, can see like, being in a pl- in a real place, mm-hmm. but experiencing the vision of a different place. Mm-hmm. And then I'm thinking, like, as you're talking, I'm like, okay, well, just because we made, we designed a place in the metaverse, does it make mm-hmm. it less of a real place Correct. than the one we're standing in? Is right. it any less real? I don't, I particularly don't think so. Yeah. I particularly don't think so. I, I think that it might, well, it's enough physical place. It's a much real place with real interactions with real people. You know, we're just simply doing it through different means. Just how you and I are communicating right now through this, you know, platform. Right. Like, why can't this be the metaverse where we're having an actual meeting with, you know, people? We're still interacting with people. We're not interacting with machines. We're interacting with others through a machine, which we already do now. You know? It's true. So it's, it's just, true. I don't know. I feel like we should embed the metaverse somewhere in somehow into our work lives, into our personal lives. Um, yeah, that's that, those are my thoughts on the metaverse. I love your thinking around this. And to yeah. me, I see something that I, I would actually like to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Oh my God. Can you imagine opening your window and then just simply just like putting on something or like if the technology is advanced enough, stepping into stepping into that window, sure. and like being able to be in the metaverse. You, it, it, I don't know. Like that to me is just having a window to the entire world. Like we're just converting the computer into our physical window and we can literally see anywhere in the world. I think it's just, that's just amazing to me. Well, your optimism, just <laughs> an enthusiasm for place and potential is just, contagious and i loved spending this time and hearing you know just hearing the smile you know as you speak <laughs> well we have uh some certainly some laughable moments in here oh, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and some beautiful moments too and some terrifying ones to be honest i mean you know your your life has all of that and you have felt all the feelings my friend <laughs> all of the feelings all of the feelings <laughs> If you enjoyed today's episode, we would really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. To discover more design stories, visit us at OFS.com slash imagine a place. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro, and you've been listening to Imagine a Place. <laughs>